Hello, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Daily Weekly. I'm your host, Catherine Newhan. So we're going to jump right into the weekly news roundup. So I'm here with our content creator, Shreya Dada, and our assistant producer, Yvonne Yao. And we're going to bring you some of the biggest news stories that The Daily put out this week. So first one, um, Winter Storm Jaden has officially struck the University of Michigan. <laughs> officially. I know. Uh, on Tuesday, the university announced that all classes were canceled and building operations would be reduced. Earlier on Tuesday morning as well, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer declared a state of emergency due to wind chills predicted to be as low as negative 50 degrees. Mm -hmm. The last time the university halted activity was in 2015 due to 18 inches of snowfall and again in 2014 when the wind chill then was negative 30 degrees. And the first time the university ever closed was in January 1978. So pretty crazy stuff, but I can't say I'm mad about not having class. Yeah, and university student groups such as the Michigan Power Network called on the administration to cancel class through their hashtag UMich cold shoulder petition, which currently has over 13,000 signatures. It obviously worked, right? <laughs> yeah, thank God. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the weather here has been a little bit hectic the past week and a half. Um, last week, there was a whole sheet of ice that covered the entire campus. It was a nightmare for me to walk home, at least. I don't know about oh, you. Me too. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and also, there was a blue bus that, blue bus that crashed on Monday. Siley Ammon and Alex Herring wrote up this article. It was a Bursley Bates bus, so poor kids already had to go up to North Campus, and it slid off the road and into a tree. There were 20 students on the bus, but there were no injuries, thankfully. So yeah, it's been pretty crazy here in terms of weather. I know. Hopefully it warms up soon. Mm. Um, this next story comes to us from Melanie Taylor. In the beginning of 2019, more than 70 Michigan marijuana dispensaries that were previously operating under temporary licenses were forced to close down. Since 2016, the state has uh, reformed its regulation of the production and sale of medical marijuana, and as a result, there has been a shortage of it in many parts of Michigan, including Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor has 20 dispensaries, um, and only seven of which have official licenses. When the shortage hit, local residents and business owners were disproportionately affected. Supplies were depleting while demand kept rising. Dang. Now for some more weed-related news. <laughs> Although marijuana is now legal in Michigan, the Department of Licensing and Regulatory Affairs does not yet provide commercial licenses for recreational marijuana dispensaries. This has created a loophole in the law, allowing businesses to gift marijuana on the side of selling other products like sweets, snacks, and even art. One business that has capitalized off of this is Smoke's Chocolate, created by Mark Bernard. Smoke's Chocolate strictly sells non-medicated chocolate products, but hires drivers who are medical marijuana patients. Upon delivery of the chocolate, the drivers at their own discretion may choose to give cannabis gifts to customers. Customers are only el eligible, however, for a free gift if they are 21 years or older, and Smoke's Chocolate does not interact directly with the cannabis plant itself. Once marijuana dispensaries open in Michigan, Smoke's Chocolate anticipates that it will be difficult to maintain sales and its clever gifting business model. Yeah, it's totally insane that they're capitalizing off of this weird loophole in the law right now, because it's totally legal. You know, because, I know it's going to yeah. be interesting. Interesting to see um, how this business evolves once the law changes. Yeah. you never know. Maybe if you're nice to your driver, you'll get a side of marijuana <laughs> with your order. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe insomnia cookies should do that too. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, and another story that came to us was that student-faculty relations were banned on December 10th, but the policy was further explained at a University of Michigan Senate Assembly on Monday. Basically, they reiterated the policy, um, and Senate Assembly Chair Neil Marsh began the presentation by discussing their new standard practice guide regarding relationships. So, um, Marsh said that the office of the provost asked Sakua to revise the guide and explain it, and it will be put into effect into effect in February. So now student-faculty relations are totally banned. It doesn't matter if you're a graduate student dating an undergrad or a faculty member dating a grad student. It's all banned now, and this came um, became the deal because of some issues with the Office of Institutional Equity. Only students can report sexual harassment and um, faculty can't, so there was some unequal balance there. And then also grad students act as teachers here when they're GSIs Mm -hmm. or graduate student instructors. So there's that power dynamic already there. So they decided to put an end to that totally. Interesting. And lastly, a new minor at the University of Michigan was approved last Wednesday, January 23rd. We're here with public policy senior Lauren Shandival and LSA seniors Megan Wheat and Zach Tingley. Recently, the three of them spearheaded the Social Class and Inequality Study Minor, a new minor in the Women's Studies Department, available next fall, making the University of Michigan the first university in the country to offer an academic program that focuses specifically on social class. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. So Lauren, can you tell us about the origin of the minor? When did you have this idea and what was the inspiration behind it? Yeah, it, it started with a conversation that Megan and I actually had on the Diag the summer after our freshman year. Um, I remember I had just come from uh, a meeting with lecturer uh, Dwight Lang, who's in the sociology department. He does a lot of work with first generation college students and we had initially met to talk about first gens and some of the resources that we could provide for them but then we got to talking about social class and so I was really energized by this idea that we don't really have any space on campus to study social class intersectionally and interdisciplinarily and so I remember I called Megan when I got home and I was like Megan like I I have to rant about this to you and so we met (laughs) on the Diag um, and we had this conversation if you want to explain what went down (laughs) we were were a few beers in and (laughs) (laughs) uh, we were were sitting on those concrete benches in the Diag looking at Hatcher Um, it was was like super beautiful it was the middle of July um, and we were talking about social class and Lauren goes Megan, we don't study social class the way that I think that we should at the University of Michigan. Less, you know, less, I guess, over the top. But, um, and so, you know, she goes, I really want to do something about it. So I was like, okay, let's do it. And she was like, are you serious? And I was like, yeah. So um, we originally started with the idea of a department on social class and not realizing how big of an undertaking that would be. Um, Over the next couple months, um, you know, as we started working with Zach and Emily Zonder and um, Philip Traka, who is a part of the very beginning of the social class Shout minor. Out to Philip. Yeah. <laughs> um, we came up with uh, the eventual idea of a minor, which um, Rosie, the chair of women's spread, chair of the women's department at women's studies department at the time, uh, really helped us refine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, what was the process of getting this minor approved look like? 
it started with a lot of cold emails to professors. Um, and so I remember uh, we would be going through the professor directory and look at what each professor's area of research was. And we'd be like, oh, that sort of relates to social class. Let's email that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we would just set up all of these meetings uh, with professors from across departments. Um, and I remember at the time we were talking to the chair of sociology and he was sort of warming up to the idea of having a program in his department. Um, we talked to the chair of American culture at the time and she was interested in it. Um, and then uh, we had a meeting with uh, Rosie, who Megan mentioned, who's the chair of women's studies or was at the time. Um, and she, I, we did the usual pitch and then she was like, let me tell you why this should be in my department. Um, and from there, it was um, a matter of, Zach, I don't know if you want to explain getting the task force together. Oh yeah, and then, um, well, we knew that the we wanted the creation of the MITRE to be very student-led, and one of the next steps was uh, when we worked on the proposal that was gonna be taken to the department, we wanted um, kind of a, a snapshot of like all of campus, not just like mm-hmm. the, the few of us that were working on the project. And so we built a coalition of students to like meet monthly um, and kind of, refine and uh, change the the proposal. Yeah, so how much influence did they have on that proposal as the task force? So we actually all wrote the proposal together. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, most of the actual typing, I would say Lauren did. She is very (laughs) articulate and eloquent um, and used to write for the Michigan Daily. But, um, so she probably, (laughs) most of the typing really was on her part, but we would just sit around a table for two hours, uh, once every two weeks, once a month, and Mm -hmm. all just kind of have these conversations. And I would take notes, we would create agendas, and then we'd just write the proposals. We were sitting there and go back. Um, So it was a group conversation. It seems uh, that some people would think that that might not be the most cohesive way to write a proposal, but it worked really well, and yeah. we got to have everyone's input and thoughts on the proposal, and we'd send it out to the people who weren't there. Um, yeah. One of the things that was really big for us in this task force in creating this proposal was allowing more than just the three of us to have a voice in in this proposal. Um, we are not representative of social class. We are not represented, well, all social class, we are not representative of all races or genders, the way that those identities intersect. And so we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just our voices in this proposal because we knew that that would not be indicative of this campus um, or of this community. Yeah, and in addition to students, we had um, a couple professors in women's studies. We had the chair of women's studies at the time. We had the chair of sociology. We had the director of the residential college. Mm -hmm. We had someone from um, intergroup relations. And so um, we had them and then we had all of the student leaders. And so it was a really great group that was able to work on this. Yeah, and is it common for students to spearhead minors or programs at the university? From what I can tell, it was pretty uncommon. Um, I know that there are some student-led programs like Semester in Detroit that started from student Mm -hmm. ideas and became an institutionalized uh, program. But other than that, I think usually the ideas sort of trickle down from the top, and this Mm -hmm. was a very bottom-up initiative. Yeah, and and the IGR minor was, Students helped create it, but from my understanding, I don't think it was two students in the diag, but they um, <laughs> drunk the, in the diag. <laughs> but the program on intergroup relations does have a lot of student input as well. Yeah, and so how does it feel being the first minor in the entire nation to have, like, to be focused on social class? Like, that's a big achievement and milestone within U.S. education. 
Yeah, it feels really great. Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, we were doing some initial research and um, our first question obviously was like, does this already exist? Because we don't want to reinvent the wheel. Um, and it really doesn't. Like there are centers for working class studies at a couple different universities. There are obviously a lot of centers that study poverty, but there is nothing um, that's really student facing um, that centers social class and does it in this way that allows different disciplines and, and identities to come into play. And honestly, I think it'd be like really cool if this, our kind of our idea guiding force like along a lot of these conversations was how like this might change the way that we view inequality. And like, we, I think it'd be really cool if it kind of changed the field of study like altogether. Yeah, or like, inspired more students exactly, to, yeah. uh, well, for one, create minors and two, create <laughs> minors on social class. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and so what kind of pushback, if any, did you receive while creating this minor from students, faculty, staff? Um, yeah, so a lot of the pushback we received was um, Megan, when Megan and Lauren were like initially meeting with faculty and professors, there was a lot of conversations that were kind of like, well, we already study this and it's like we study social stratification and class stratification or we already study this in Weber and Marx in theory, um, but it wasn't the same exact way in which we like it wasn't in uh, the distinct way that we wanted to study class as a, um, a system of like oppression and uh, intersectional identity um, and for example like I um, we emailed like some academics like across the country and stuff when we were first um, starting out and I sent an email to Robert Reich um, he's an economist, I think, at UC Berkeley, and he said, well, check your like sociology department at Michigan. I think they prob prob probably already do that. Um, yeah. yeah. I remember um, in the very beginning, like sophomore year, I met with a professor who's like really big into poverty research. I won't name names, but uh, he essentially told me, I don't think we need to be studying this. We need to be focusing on poverty. And that was something that we really tried to make clear in the beginning is that we think zooming out from just poverty or just like, I guess if you want to use the the more theoretical term, the lower classes and looking at the whole picture and, and seeing class as a as an identity, but also as a system of privilege and oppression is like really where we need to be focusing our, um, this is what we wanted the minor to do and, and not just focus on poverty in the ways that I think a lot of research centers do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so was your choice to have it through the Women's Studies Department intentional because of that intersectionality? Yeah, I think, so when we first started looking for a department, both sociology and the, we went to sociology, American culture, the residential college, um, the Women's Studies Department. Uh, we even met with the chair of the department on Afro and African American studies. Mm -hmm. um, but the sociology department seemed like the perfect fit, but they were having advising and um, changes in leadership within the department, and so it wasn't working out the way that we wanted. Um, and so we met with Rosie, like I said, the former chair of the Women's Studies Department, and like Lauren mentioned earlier, she was like, have it here, like, you know, we want it first, like we want the ability to vote on it first and help create this proposal, um, and kind of, you know, tried to get us to, to buy into that. And we were like, we love that. We love the enthusiasm. We love that you want to house this. 
Um, and so that's kind of how, that's one reason we got to women's studies, but also the history of the department as a whole, um, you know, being created as a product of the women's movement, having a focus on intersectionality and not just women, but gender studies overall and how that intersects with race. We thought that it was the perfect home once we looked more into it and met more faculty. Because mm -hmm. um, one big thing for us was intersectionality, or is intersectionality and interdisciplinary, which they allowed us to do. Yeah, and one thing they sold us on was the history of women's studies is really radical. And mm -hmm. initially when women's studies was founded, you know, people were like, why do we need to study this? And so it seemed to sort of mm -hmm. parallel the story of our minor as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so as students begin to take this minor, what what distinguish do you want them to make between like social class and poverty, like you were discussing before? Mm -hmm. I, I think for me, at least, um, being a working class student and going through college and learning about social class and sort of my place in this larger system has been empowering and enlightening to me and validated a lot of my experiences. So I think personally, I would like for particularly lower income students to like begin to understand their own stories um, and understand the way the world sort of works to put barriers in front of them and how they've overcome those barriers to get to a place like the University of Michigan. So that's, for me personally, what I would like some students to take away from it. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Okay. Um, so I think I've learned a lot about my own class status in this minor. Um, so I'm from Novi, Michigan, an upper middle class suburb of Detroit. Loved growing up there. Um, there were so many sports and extracurriculars and resources to succeed. Um, and coming here, I've realized that my peers both have more than me and have less than me in terms of where they come from. Um, and I hope that as students begin to study social class, they understand how encompassing that is to our identity and how it's different from socioeconomic status. That social class really is where did your parents go to school did they go to school mm -hmm. what do your parents do how much do they make because all of that impacts who you are from like the cultural and social capital that you attain and then go out into the world so sorry that was a lot of jargon <laughs> but as an upper middle class student at the University of Michigan that is notoriously wealthy I hope that my peers who come from backgrounds like me can really begin to question our role in the social class system and what we can do to really acknowledge the privileges that we have and how do we go forward acknowledging these privileges and questioning um, you know just who are we and how does social class shape us um, and then how do we continue to bring awareness to that as we leave this place of privilege that is the University of Michigan. Yeah. And also to go back to your point about disti distinguishing it from studying poverty, I think when you study poverty, uh, you're looking at people who are in the lower classes under a microscope but not necessarily analyzing you know, where that wealth is going. And so if people you know, are living with sort of lack of resources. Who has those resources? How are they using them? How do they get them? Are they born into them? You know, do they earn them over time? I think um, by just studying poverty, you're doing yourself a disservice by not looking at the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I mean, it's not like directly answering the question, but I think uh, like one thing that I'm super excited for and hopefully is just like having, like class is really uncomfortable to talk about, like, a lot of like working class people like feel shame a lot of um like upper class people just maybe they don't like they feel like uncomfortable talking to working class people about it and i think one thing that we wanted was to have like a larger conversation about class and have these classes or like a whole like organized program of classes kind of um allow people to 
talk about it, allow the university to talk about it and campus, the campus to talk about it and hopefully like instigate some change. Yeah, and um, last thing, Lauren, I know you wrote the um, How to Not Be Rich at U of M and it happened to fall in the middle of when you were proposing this minor. Did that influence or uh, validate your reasons for making this minor? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, the guide sort of came out of nowhere uh, in January of 2018. um, And I had already been thinking about class and my own identity as a working class student. Um, And it obviously, the guide came in response to um, the CSG Campus Affordability Guide, um, Mm -hmm. which I think there's a huge class discussion to be had there about some of the assumptions that are made of lower income students on this campus. And so when I made that guide, I was really thinking of low income students in the same way that I'm thinking of them when proposing this minor, um, because I want those students to feel like their experiences are validated and to be able to tell those stories and have a forum to sort of meet each other and and um, help each other out and empower each other. And so I think there are a lot of parallels. Um, creating the guide and sort of receiving uh, feedback about it has allowed me to understand how class manifests on college campuses more, particularly in issues of housing affordability and food security, which are things that I weren't super aware of before I really tapped into this world of college affordability because it's like a whole field of study. Um, and so uh, having both perspectives, both the the larger perspective zoomed out of social class as a whole on, in this country, and then also uh, you know learning about how it plays out on college campuses has been really enlightening. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Daily Weekly. Again, I'm your host, Katherine Newhan. This episode was produced by audio engineer Ryan Cox, content creator Shreya Dada, assistant producer Ivan Yao, and executive producer Katherine Newhan. Tune in next week if you're a news geek.